This week on the show, we have Do One Thing and Do It Well article, Rob Pike, Kerningen, you know the drill. Turning a 15-year-old laptop into a children-proof retro gaming station is what Celine does, as well as the old computer challenge version 3, uh, day one. That's what she also does, so she's been writing uh, good blog posts here. Uh, it takes six days to change one line of code, it turns out, and this is a cautionary tale that I read to you. Uh, rejected GitHub profile achievements is what Tom is telling you about and we have an old NetBSD server that's been running for 13 plus years and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now episode 525 old NetBSD server recorded on the 30th of August 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. I hope you had a nice uh, summer. Ours is still ongoing. And uh, although you didn't notice since every week there came uh, an episode for you, we did some pre-recordings and so we could enjoy our own summers a little bit. And yeah, that went quite well. And now we're back with this episode going right into the headlines, starting with do one thing and do it well. So that may sound familiar to Unix folks, right? That's the old mantra. And uh, here it comes directly from, you guessed it, Kerningham and Pike were right. One thing and do it well. Why there are so many pop-ups on this website? Ah, it's medium.com. And That's um, why. <laughs> <laughs> we're off to a good start here. Extensible programs. It's not a medium amount of pop-ups. Oh, of course, right? Not. <laughs> okay, Kerningham and Pike were right. Do one thing and do it well. And uh, the subheading is extensible programs like Obsidian have achieved a holy grail of software architecture after decades of failed attempts. And Keaton Brandt wrote this, I gather, from there. And there's a nice picture of Rob Pike and Brian Kerningen uh, on our show notes. You can find the article, of course, but the article reads, in October 1984, two ideologies published a radical manifesto. Sort of. Program design in the Unix environment, there's a link to that. Uh, that's cat.v.org. That's probably also known to a lot of people. Uh, and by science, well, computer science legend, of course, Brian Kerningen and Rob Pike articulated a pattern for software architecture that both men had already spent years fighting to preserve. Admittedly, as far as manifestos go, it's about as spicy as you'd expect from two Canadian engineers. Its most pointed jab is that memorable line from the abstract, <clears throat> quote, old programs have become encrusted with dubious features, unquote. The crux of this paper is often summed up by the acronym D-O-T-A-D-I-W. This is like... I've never heard this before. WYSIWYG, right? Don't yeah, it's hard to pronounce, but it stands for do one thing and do it well. Unix and its descendants, that's not the word that I would use. Descendants. descendants. Unix and its descendants are full of programs that embody this mantra. LS just lists files. Cat just outputs file contents. Grep just filters data. 
WC just counts words, etc. Each program has a few options that change its behavior, but not too many. For example, WC can be configured to count lines or words, but can't count the number of paragraphs or the occurrences of a specific phrase. The power of Unix, as championed by Koenig and Pike, was the ability to chain these simple programs together to create complex behaviors. Why add regex matching to WC when grab already does that? To count the number of functions in a Rust file, you could run cat pipe. Oh, there's the cat pipe grab thing again. Okay, so cat main.rs pipe grab something and then pipe that to wc-l. Grab can read from files directly, so you wouldn't need the cat pipe grab, but that's me. Translate it from bash jargon to plain English, read the file, filter to just the lines containing functions, uh, the lines where the first non-whitespace text is uh, fn in this case, and then count those lines. The pipe operator simply moves the output of one program into the input of the next. This is a great idea. The simple programs that comprise the command are easy to develop and maintain. In fact, they're so simple that they might genuinely be free of bugs, a feat most laughably implausible for any more complicated piece of software. Unfortunately, as with most manifestos, this ideal doesn't hold up to real-world scrutiny. Unix programs can only communicate in one direction and only by sending streams of text. The mode no, not the mode. The model made some amount of sense in a terminal environment, but never successfully made the jump to desktop operating systems. So popular modern programs like Photoshop and Word are about as encrusted with dubious features as it possibly be. Koenigen and Pike's beautiful idea never came to fruition. And shittification, that's not my word, that's the article. Let's assume Koenigen and Pike were right about at least one thing. That is software bloat. That software bloat is a problem, right? Massive apps are hard to learn, hard to use, and bugged as hell. Some of this is a Unix problem, or UX problem more like, but most of it is actually a symptom of the developer experience. Big monolithic apps have large code bases that slow down development velocity. They're slower to compile, harder to test, and full of dark corners where bugs can lurk and multiply. A bad change to one part of a code base can cause headaches for an entire building's worth of developers tanking productivity for hours or days. But of course, users don't really care about development velocity or code base size. Unfortunately, those quantities are inextricably linked to the things users do care about. Speed, price, features, and most importantly, reliability. Uh, there's more in the article about lines of code and the bugs introduced versus the development velocity. velocity. And more, so, so some graphs and analysis where the entitification point that was mentioned earlier uh, occurs, so where these two lines, the development velocity and bugs introduced, meet, and what that implies. Then they talk a little bit about uh, microservices uh, at scale, where the evolution of software architectures eventually went to. So they have this nice uh, pasta-style uh, picture here, 1990s had spaghetti-oriented architecture, aka copy and paste. In the 2000s, they had more like a lasagna-oriented architecture, aka layered monoliths. And in the 2010s, they have ravioli-oriented, I get hungry by just reading this, ravioli-oriented architecture, aka microservices. And then they have a line at the bottom, what's next? Probably pizza-oriented architecture. And so the article is well worth reading. They did also a bit of math there, I see, and developed a couple of theories about how to use them and where these uh, apply well. And uh, in conclusion, they have at the bottom, the last paragraph is, there are no easy answers, but there are clues all around us. To determine the ideal structure for complex software, consider the structures that have survived the billion years of cutthroat evolution. 
atoms and molecules, solar systems and galaxies, our own internal organs, tractors and cameras, obsidian and visual studio code. Oh wow. Uh, each are built of small single purpose units, just like Koenigen and Pike intended. Next, in our headline stories this week, we have an article from Selena at dataswamp.org. And Selena is writing about turning a 15 years old laptop into a children proof retro gaming station. This article explains a setup I made for a family vacation place. I wanted to turn an old laptop, a Dell Vostro 1500 from 2008, into a retro gaming station. That's actually easy to do, but I want to make it child-proof, so we'll always work even if we leave the children alone with the laptop for a moment. That part was harder. This is not a tutorial explaining everything from A to Z, but mostly what worked, what didn't from my experimentation. The first step is to pick an operating system. I wanted to use Alpine with the persistent mode I described last week that was like having nothing persistent except the ROM files. Unfortunately, the packages for RetroArch and Alpine were missing the cores I wanted, so I dropped Alpine. A RetroArch core is the library required to emulate a given platform console. Then I wanted to give FreeBSD a try before switching to a more standard Linux system. Alpine uses libc musl, musl libc, which makes it non-standard for my use case. The setup was complicated as FreeBSD barely does anything by itself at install time. But after I got a working desktop, RetroArch had an issue. I couldn't launch any game even though the cores were loaded. I can't explain why this wasn't working. Everything seemed fine. On top of this issue, gamepad support has been really random, so I gave up. Finally, I installed Debian 12 using the net install ISO and without installing any desktop and graphical server like X or Wayland, just bare Debian. To achieve a more children-proof environment, I decided to turn RetroArch directly from a TTY without a graphical server. This removes a lot of issues. No desktop you could log. No desktop you could log out from. No icons, no menus to move, delete. Nothing fancy, just RetroArch and full screen. In addition to all the benefits listed above, this also reduces the emulation latency and makes the system lighter by not having to render through X or Wayland. I had to install RetroArch package and some GL, Vulkan, Mesa, SDL2 related packages to have it working. One major painful issue I had was to figure out a way to start RetroArch in TTPI 1 at boot. Actually, this is really hard, especially since it must start under a debug session to have all features enabled. My solution is a hack, but good enough for the use case. I overrode the Getty at TTPI TTY 1 service to automatically log in the user and modified the user's uh, .bashrc file to execute exec RetroArch. If RetroArch quits, the TTY1 would be reset and RetroArch starts again, and you can't escape it. No escape from uh, RetroArch. Uh, uh. I can't describe all the tweaks I did in RetroArch. Some were for pure enhancement, some for hardening. Here's a list of things I changed. Pre-configure all controllers you want to use with the system. Disable all menus except the playlists. They automatically group games by support, which is fine. Set the default core for each playlist. This removes an extra weird step for non-technical users. Um, set a special shortcut to access quick menu from the controller, something like start select should be good. This allows drop, pause a game controller. This allows you to drop, pause a game from the controller, so you can pause from the controller. In addition to all of that, there is a lovely kiosk mode. This basically just allows you to password protect all the settings in RetroArch. Once you're done with configuration, enable the kiosk mode, nothing can be changed, except putting uh, ROM in favorite. I configured a few more extra things to make the experience more children-proof. Grub can be a major issue if a child boots up the laptop and presses a key at grub time. 
<laughs> grub time. Uh, just set grub timeout equals zero to disable the menu prompt. It will directly start into Debian. That's one of the secret grub configurations that no one will tell you. The computer doesn't need to be connected to any network, so I disabled all services related to network. This reduced the boot time by a few seconds and prevent anything weird from happening. It may be wise to lock the BIOS so in case you have children who know how to boot something on a computer, they wouldn't be able to do that. This also prevents mistakes in the BIOS. Better be careful, don't lose that password. Yeah, I don't know what you do if you lose a BIOS password. Uh, the Plymouth splash screen. If you want your gaming console to have this extra thing that will turn the boring and scary boot process into something cool, you can use Plymouth. I found a nice splash screen featuring the Optimus head from Transformers while the system is loading. It looks pretty cool. And surely this will give some more charm and persona compared to the System D boot process. This delays the boot by a few seconds, though. Why? Um... I have so many questions from this and none of them are related to the article. Um, RetroArch is a fantastic software for emulation. You can even run it from a TTY for lower latency. Um, its controller mapping is really smart. You have to configure each controller against some kind of reference controller. And then each core will have a map from the reference controller to convert into the control console, control console controller you're emulating. This means you don't have to map your controller for each console just once. Doing a childproof kiosk computer wasn't easy. I'm sure there was room for improvement, but I'm happy that I turned a 15-year-old laptop into something useful that will bring joy for kids and memories for adults without them fearing the system will be damaged by kids, except physical damage. But hey, you know, I won't put the thing in a box. Now I have to do some paint job for the laptop behind the screen part to look bright and shiny. Cool. Thanks, Salim. Mm. Nice project. Other than headlines, we like to go round and around and around in the news roundup. And once again, in the news roundup, we're back to Celine. Um, I need to read these in the right order. One of my favorite episodes of the podcast, 99% Invisible, was a joke episode where they did a, a parody of the show called 99% Parenthetical, where they frequently broke into parentheticals while they were speaking. <laughs> so I'm going to try that. Um, this is another post by Celine. Um, it is Old Computer Challenge V3 D... Old Computer Challenge V3 Day 1. Um, it came out on the 10th of July. Hi, Celine writes. Today I started the third edition of the Computer Challenge... And it's not going well. I didn't prepare a computer before because I wanted to see how easy it would be. Now there's a link to the old computer challenge, so let's read that. The old computer challenge V3, written by Celine on the 4th of June. Hi. Uh, hi, Celine. Uh, it's that time of year where I announce a new old computer challenge. If you don't know about it, it's a weird challenge. I've done it twice in the past three years. It consists of limiting my computer performance using old hardware or by limiting inter-access to 60 minutes a day. For 2023's challenge, I want this challenge to be accessible. The first one wasn't easy for many because it required to use an old machine, but many re readers didn't have a spare old computer. Weird, right? The second one with the internet time limitation was hard to set up. This one is a bit back to roots. Let's use a slow computer for seven days. This will be achieved by various means with any hardware. Limit your computer CPU to only one core. This can be set in the BIOS most of the time, and on Linux you can use max cores equals one in your boot command line. On OpenBSD you can use the bst.sp kernel for the duration of the challenge. Limit your computer's memory to 512 megabytes. No swap limit. I think I'm using limited swap. This can be set on Linux using the boot command line mem equals 512 MB. On OpenBSD this can be achieved a bit by using a similar data hyphen max, data size hyphen max equals 512 in your login.com for your user's login class. 
Ah, okay. Set your CPU frequency to the lowest minimum, which is pretty low on modern hardware. On Linux, use the power save frequency governor. In modern desktop environments, the battery widget should offer a way to set the governor. On OpenBSD, run APM-L. Okay, that's the context for the challenge. Uh, no, I need more. Sorry. Uh, frequently asked questions. Um, if you use a computer to work in, it isn't affected by the challenge. Keep your job, please. <laughs> Don't use it to circumvent your regular slow, but don't use it to circumvent your regular slow computer. If you use a computer with lower specs, this is compliant with the challenge rules. Feel free to ask me questions. I want this to be as easy to everyone to have fun together. I can update this blog post to make things clearer if needed. GNOME desktop doesn't start with 512 megabytes. Oh, <laughs> That's, okay. Yeah, already quite hungry. Okay. I, I had to go back. Okay, so the first bullet point after computer challenge v3, which is the art of car, we push onto a stack and we've now popped. Um, main computer, Ryzen 5 5600X with 32 gigabytes of memory running Cubes OS. Well, Cubes may be the worst OS for that challenge because it needs so much memory as everything is done on virtual machines. Just handling USB devices requires 400 megabytes of memory. Cool. Main laptop, uh, T470 running OpenBSD 7.3. For some reasons, the memory limitation isn't working. Maybe it's due to the hardware or the 7.3 kernel. Main laptop running OpenSUSE Micro OS in dual boot. Is that two different operating systems? I'm not sure. Reducing the memory to 512 megabytes prevents the system from unlocking the LUKS drive. <laughs> isn't that the crypto thing? Yeah. Okay, sorry. So little memory, little fun, <laughs> little use. Hitting untested, untested parts of the stack. Um, <laughs> Sling continues. The thing is that I have some other laptops around, but I'd have to prepare them with full disk encryption and file synchronization to have my passwords, GPG, and SSH keys around. With this challenge, in its first hour, I realized my current workflows don't allow me to use computers with 512 megabytes of memory. This is quite sad. A solution would be to use the iBook G4 laptop I've been using since the beginning of the challenges, or my T400, um, yeah, T400 running OpenBSD current. They have really old hardware, and the challenge is about allowing, allowing more fancy systems. I'd really like to try Alpine Linux for this challenge, so let's wrap something around this idea. Extra or tips. If you join the challenge, here's a previous guide to limit your memory of your system. For this challenge, you also need to use a single core as low as frequency. On OpenBSD, limiting the frequency is easy. So there's some commands. Uh, on OpenBSD, limiting, limiting CPU is easy. On OpenBSD, limiting your system to single core can be done by booting um, BSD.sp. Uh, cool. Thanks, Celine. I, I, I can't wait to read the follow-up to this in the future. How it um, goes, how it went, yeah. It's, it sounds like such a nightmare. <laughs> I think the memory limitation thing on OpenBSD is probably just not being tested. It's probably another flag which would get the kernel not to populate the page table so it doesn't have so much i know freebsd can do this yeah i mean with all these cool. embedded devices around with like raspberries that only have so many or at least the first generation only so much memory available you would kind of think that there's software that would run on these but apparently everything is hungry for main memory now yeah and the problem with raspberries is like you you, you crush one of the little cells and, and then it will go moldy really quickly. Yeah. Um, or any other embedded device was, doesn't have to be the pie. That was a fruit joke. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I still remain surprised that web browsers won't run in less memory than, you know, a gigabyte of RAM. Because it wasn't really that long ago that phones had less than a gigabyte of RAM. And they were running the web fine. Yeah. I don't, maybe not the most popular not, browsers. Maybe some others like Vivaldi or what are they called? 
smart the alternative browser I, is not yet yeah, mainstream. I don't get why there isn't something smaller that we can run. Because I, yeah. I I don't have computers with that little rent memory, but it's just amazing. I mean, right now I have, I don't know, 20 tabs open for the show. Just 20? And the rest is work well, tabs? Well, these or? are just the articles we're going to read for the show in the next one. I'm giving away the background here. Yeah. We record two shows at a time. Uh, we say the date in the, the Louisiana. Oh, dear. Um, I have like 20 tabs here, but none of these web pages need any computation once they're loaded. Apart from, you know, the, the show docs, which are in Google Docs. But even then, there's not it's not that much memory. I don't understand hmm. what... Where, where did the memory go? Why are you using so much? Yeah. Stop it. No swap. No nothing. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, let's switch gears a little bit um, because apparently, according to this article, it takes six days to change one line of code. Oh, dear. Uh, a true story, they say at the beginning. Philip, president, quote, uh, or they have some kind of uh, interview thing, seems like. Uh, our factory is underutilized by 10%. Either we start building more of our backlog or we lay people off. Uh, Philip is the president, by the way. I'd rather keep everyone busy, build inventory, and get ahead of the curve before the busy season. How can we do that? Lee, the operations manager, says, company policy restricts us from building more than three months of backlog. If you just change that to four months, we'll have plenty of work. Philip, done. Now, how do we implement that? Lee, I'm not really sure. I think we'd have to change a setting in legacy software. David, the IT director, says, no problem. It's probably one line of code in our Core routine, fill out a ticket and I submit it to IT services. Judy, the IT admin, goes, I'm assigning this request ticket 1,295, 281, whatever, some number. But it still needs the section on business impact completed and director approval. David replies, it's for Philip. If we don't do this right away, we'll have to have a layoff. Judy, okay, then I'll fill out that section myself and put this on the fast track. Two days later, David, what's the status of... Ticket number, you know. Judy, it's the first enhancement in the developer queue after 14 bug reports. David goes, forget the queue. Mark it urgent and send it to Ed immediately. An hour passes. Ed, the programmer, is online 1,252 on module ORP 527. I changed the hard-coded variable months of backlog from 3 to 4. I unit tested this successfully and ran two batch test runs. The operations work queue increased 10% as expected. This is good to go. I just submitted it to code review and moved it to... What? <laughs> into Oh, moved into Homer for user acceptance testing. Shirley of code review goes, it's not against company policy... Uh, oh, it is, it is now against company policy to have any hard-coded variables. You will have to make it a record in the parameters file. Also, there are two old debug commands and unassigned variable warning messages and a hard-coded employee ID that will have all to be fixed before this module can be moved to production. Add beep this shit. Shirley goes, that may well be true, but since we were assigned ORP572, you are responsible for fixing pre-existing errors that violate new company policy. I cannot promote this as it is. Two hours later, Ed, okay, done. I resubmitted it to a code review. Julie of in IT testing. Homer is not available for user acceptance testing because Fred is running a controlled test for month-end accounting close. Use March instead. Ed is again going, I don't have access to March. Julie says, then contact Joe in IT security. He'll give you permissions. Two hours later again. 
Joe in IT security says, I cannot grant you access to March without David's signature. He's out of town. Can this wait until Monday? Ed goes, I don't think so. Philip wants this right away. Get him get him to grant access. Shirley is uh, saying, your new parameters record months of demand needs be better named. The offshore programmers won't understand what this means. Also, it should have an adult trail of changes. An audit trail of changes, not adult trail. Ed is, what policy is that? Shirley goes, it's not exactly written down anywhere. The offshore team is three months late updating the wiki, but I assure you a new parameter records must satisfy new naming requirements and keep audit trails. One day later, Ed is now, I renamed the parameters record months of demand to selected months of backlog demand and added module PAR634 to maintain that record and its audit trail. I have submitted it to code review. Tony in IT testing joins and says, I see 129281 on March, but I have no test plan. Ed is uh, saying then, just run it the old way and the new way and note the increase in the total on the work order hours report. Tony, uh, what's your plan of testing? No, this affects everything in the factory. I have to have user-selected test cases, expected results, documented test runs, and user sign-off. Two days later... Philip goes, David, tell Tony to move Ed's program to production immediately. David, yes, sir. Totally elapsed time, six days. Lines of mission-critical code changed, one. Bytes of mission-critical code changed, also one. Uh, what's that? Ex Exedrin eaten? 24. Ex yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pissed off hours spent on Hacker News 14. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, so I was at a uh, Kanban training in Hamburg uh, two weeks ago, which was very cool. Uh, had some teaching and some practical. And I'm, I wasn't teaching. I was a student again. Um, and had some practical parts and also where we like, oh, we just did everything wrong that they were just taught us. And yeah, you, had, you were supposed to so that you never forget. And this reminded me very much of it, like make things work and make things move along instead of you know, keeping it in the queue forever. Yeah, but, but they could have just they could have just changed the company policy that, <laughs> yeah. at the start. But where did the policy uh, come from? From bad experience, yeah, probably. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> it it just goes all the way into the rabbit holes and never out again. Next, under comedy, we have rejected GitHub profile achievements. Um, this is from Flat on GitHub. I don't know. I don't know if it's just them. A collection of listing achievements that were rejected when creating the GitHub profile achievements feature. This repository attempts to list them all. Vital contributor. Um, each of these has a title, a badge, and, and an earned by. I'm not going to read the badge to you because it's a it's a picture. This is this is a podcast. Um, yeah. Vital contributor. Over 100 issue comments consisting of just plus one or a thumbs up. Sith Lord. Wipe out someone else's commits by force pushing to the main branch. Procrastinator, created a readme with a single init commit with just a readme.md. Never touched it for five years. <laughs> okay, so for the previous one, I, I just want to get a sign. This is like days since um, issues caused by git force push and just have it always a zero. <laughs> um, I found on my server the other day uh, a git repository called memes. So I cloned memes.git. And it was an empty repo. <laughs> secret Santa accidentally commit a secret API key in a public repo. Oops. 
Monkey Wrench. Make a commit directly to the main branch that breaks the build process. This is fine. Over 1,000 open issues on a public repos- on public repositories you own. Good job. Aberist. Abor- ab- uh, trees. Aberist. Maintain a repo that has at least f- 150 branches. Merged, but never deleted. Why would you delete them? Teehee. In a single minor cleanup commit to the main branch, change every line of every file in the repo so that all open pull requests are unmergeable. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Pay... Patient Skeleton. Submit a pull request to a public repo that fixes it, but it's been open for at least two years. Oh, yeah. 2FU. It's 2023, and you've never enabled 2FA. (laughs) Speedreader. Review and approve a pull request that contains over 10,000 lines of code in under 15 seconds. It's bad luck. Merge a commit on a Friday and deploy it on GitHub Actions and roll back the commit on the weekend. Works on my machine. Suggest user error and at least 10 issue threads without attempting to reproduce end-user runtime environments. Ah. Logvis, have log4j2 version 2.0 to 2.17 as a dependency in your project. Ah, ouch. Authors note, this is a joke. <laughs> uh, oh, it's by Schweinepriester slash GitHub profile achievements. Okay. Yeah, Germans know what a Schweinepriester is, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they have some other cool things in there. All right. Yeah, this is, see, it can be fun in working in IT sometimes. Um, <laughs> this is, the next one has something that we found, which was uh, popularly featured on uh, the hacker news of this world, uh, that old NetBSD server. It turns out that there's a NetBSD server running since 2010. If you do the math, that's 13 plus years as 2010 was drawing to a close, I found myself on more flights than coffee breaks, constantly testing technical solutions in search of stability and reliability. One morning, a client called. Hello. They needed to operate various services in their internal network, which essentially meant reconfiguring the entire network behind their firewall. They required a DHCP, an internal DNS, an Apache plus PHP server for some internal and a couple of external websites, a file server accessible via both NFS and Samba as Windows PCs needed access, an internal SMTP connecting to an external relay to ensure faster email dispatches for employees given their unstable connectivity, and a few other nuances. My task was to set all this up within a tight two-day window. Given the constraints, I opted for my top choice of time. For such tasks, NetBSD. I suggested the client invest in enterprise-grade hardware. However, they insisted on using a server that they already had, assembled by a local vendor with gaming-quality parts, quote-unquote. Though they claimed these were high-quality, it was clearly consumer-grade, lacking dual power supply, remote management capability, and fitted with consumer-grade hard drives. Hmm. I always had that feeling that I wasn't their first choice for the job. Perhaps someone had bailed on them and they had settled for me. They had originally intended to implement everything on Windows 2008 server, but I pursued, no, not pursued, persuaded them to try my solution. With the hardware in hand and less than 48 hours on the clock, I dived in. The operating system, as mentioned, was NetBSD 5.1 back in the day. I copied 
compartmentalize these services, running server Zendomu, my favorite solution at the time, over the NAS and KVM on Linux. This involved creating multiple partitions on two disks and setting up a unique RAID for each DOMU. This is the DOM unprivileged, yeah. After unsuccessfully, oh, after successfully, sorry, successfully setting everything up, including an external connection to my OpenVPN hub, I handed the server back to the client. Checking in a month later, the feedback was mostly positive, save for some SMB latency issues. Over the next two to three years, I made occasional adjustments to the machine, but then lost touch with the client. By 2015, my OpenVPN hub was discontinued, taking with it many older or defunct servers, including that NetBSD server. Fast forward to February 2021, the phone rang. Hello. It was that same client seeking to integrate a new network configuration because of a new firewall. The fact that they were calling meant that the NetBSD server was still alive. Curious, I accepted the task. To my astonishment, the server was still up and running perfectly. The external services were active but inaccessible, wisely kept hidden from potential threats, while the internal ones were functioning smoothly. NFS was working as were SMB, the internal DNS and the SMTP relay. The server was executing about 80% of its original tasks. What surprised me the most was its uptime. Sadly, I didn't take note, but the last restart had been in 2012 after the Emilia Romanagna Romagna earthquake. Oh, okay, well, that's yeah, uh, a need to restart certain things. They had a backup generator, so the server always had an efficient, uninterrupted power supply. Nine years of uptime for a server set up in a few hours on consumer-grade hardware and left largely unattended for years. I now understand why I'm not and never will be rich. My first and last employer complained about my preference for stable and reliable solutions, equating it with lesser profits. According to him, unstable solutions requiring frequent maintenance meant more revenue. Well, yeah, to me, a job uh, is well done when it works consistently and not when it demands constant fixes. I like this attitude. I'm unsure if the server is uh, still operational, but I'll certainly check when I get a chance. Nonetheless, I'm grateful for having trusted NetBSD, a lightweight, stable, secure, and efficient operating system, which, in my view, still doesn't receive the acclaim it truly deserves. Yeah, there's nothing so permanent than a temporary solution. It's cool that it runs along with with no introduction. Yeah, I mean, didn't we get this a lot at um, FOSDEM and, and other events where say, oh, hey, what's new in the BSDs? I'm running a system at the company, but we never have to touch it. So it just runs and runs and runs and we never have to do anything with it. I, I, I haven't heard that, but it does make sense. <laughs> yeah, well, a couple of updates wouldn't hurt, I guess, especially security. But if it's doing its job, then yeah, good. <laughs> BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated, and then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties, so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid 
for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Okay, we, we do this show with your help and you get to contribute by giving us feedback and questions. Oh, yeah. If you would like to have your question or comment or suggestion or your, your idea just right out on the show, you can send us an email at feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll put it in the queue. And in one to 12 months, we might read it on the show. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> First up, we have some feedback from Felix and it is titled Questions. Um, Felix writes, Hey, BSD Now folks, you asked for more questions and feedback. So here I am again. Thanks, Felix. The first thing I want to talk about is what I and others in the FreeBSD community, like Vermidin in a recent post, have noticed lately, which is one of FreeBSD's most amazing features, VNet jails, is rarely talked about and is still not covered at all in the FreeBSD handbook. And this comes as a surprise to me as I regularly hear people complaining about how complex networking, especially IPv6, is in Docker. As, as an aside, me interdiction, I went to a Docker talk in. 2016 or 2017 and i asked the speaker uh, how does docker handle ipv6 and they said i don't know what that is and then kept speaking um, which, which is funny but the pizza was nice um, <laughs> felix can, felix um felix says this is a missed opportunity as networking in a vnet jail is very easy as it is identical to how it is set up and works on a regular freebsd host personally there is not too much i can do here but maybe someone else will hear about this and decide to take matters into their own hands Speaking of networking, I recently tried IPv6 with Slack on FreeBSD hosts and VNet jails. What I could not figure out was why I could not get RTSOLD to install an IPv6 default route unless I rebooted the host or jail. Online, I have found others asking why this doesn't work in several places, but have yet to find a solution. With IPv4 and DHCP, this is not necessary, and at this point, I don't know if this is a bug or if it is by design. What do you think about this? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Felix. Thanks, Felix. Um, yeah, people should um, write more about VNet jails. Um, I I personally have a philosophy towards documentation that it should be... Doc, that documentation and examples should be executable as much as possible in a tutorial style without permanent modifications to the system. <laughs> And that's not how the FreeBSD documentation is written. So I don't know how to help because so, that's not how I would write any of this stuff because I don't, I, I use jails as um, test environments and I set them up manually and I tear them down a lot and I do this just all with direct jail commands. And so I don't actually know these parts, but, so, but this is a great opportunity to start contributing to the docs part of FreeBSD. And I'm sure Benedict would love more people to contribute to the docs part of FreeBSD so he could yeah. review more docs. There is actually stuff. Sergio of the um, very proficient, uh, uh, who has been very proficient in the past and it still is, uh, doing a whole handbook revamp. Uh, so going through each section, each chapter, rewriting, changing, deleting, updating stuff. And I think he's going to get to the jails chapter eventually or should have been by now and he would like people to review his changes make suggestions additions and other stuff so that's a good way to 
drive these issues like VNet, uh, which may still, I mean, it has been a long time since it has been marked experimental, right, in the source tree. And then people were like, why I'm is that still? immersed in FreeBSD 11, yeah. so it's fine. And, um, and maybe that perception still is in people's it, minds. It, it's it's partially documentation. It's partially when you look into this, you see how easy it is, and you think, yeah, that was fine. Mm. And you forget the difficult path it took you to get there. Yeah, So that's, that's true. That's the hard part. Um, your second question, I think it might be a bug. I'm not actually sure. I have seen people complain about this. Um, I don't have that much experience with real IPv6 networks because IPv6 is not deployed where I live at all. And so I have always been given um, static addresses um, in workplaces or I get static addresses in cloud providers. And so I don't get to play with any of the fun stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I've never, I, I mean, it shouldn't be too hard to set up a test environment for this. And that would be a good way to reproduce it. Um, this question is a great place for someone who wants to start contributing to FreeBSD. I mean, you could start writing jail stuff or you could start debugging why Slack don't go. Yeah, especially since that seems to be not a single uh, issue with a single person, but multiple people have complained about this. This might be a general issue that really may be a bug in there that we could yeah, and come a, up. A big thing we need more of in FreeBSD and in the networking stack is tests. And so tests to reproduce the setup, even if everything is working and it is just a documentation issue or a user error, they still help because then we have tests and it won't regress. So lots of value here. Definitely a great place to start contributing if you want to. Thanks, Felix. Or if someone knows this, uh, how to do this properly or where the bug may be, then send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv. We'll cover this and link that back to this issue. Or, or better, if you contribute to FreeBSD, you can send us an email saying you contributed to FreeBSD based on us demanding you do yeah, it. Even better, show. right? That and then we will read that out and you'll get to feel good because you'll get imaginary internet points. Yeah, and we interview you and all these cool things. Points mean prizes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next up is Francis uh, about episode 511 where my French is not too good, apparently. Um, he says, Hi, playing catch-up on the podcast. I may be late at it. No worries, but here it is. Tum fatigue, which I probably read not completely correct. Tume fatigues. That probably was wrong. French way of telling someone you're tiresome to me or you're getting on my nerves. So maybe not try this on your first uh, conversation class in, fr in French. Um, but yeah, I hope that helps. Yeah, okay. We'll try to <laughs> make this better in the future. I really had no idea this was coming from there. But yeah. <laughs> okay and then last up we have some feedback it's just feedback from ian and it's titled cdn and ian writes just dropping a quick note because this is actually something we did ourselves i've actually done this twice once a former employer who did video streaming and again at stadium apps as you said at least in some cases the cdns are really just built on major cloud vendors in our case we chose linode now acquired by akamai and built an edge network using HAProxy for our ingress, along with some caching layers. Everything depends on project needs, but if you're just trying to minimize the first, the minim, the, the, but if you're just trying to minimize time to first byte, and you can afford to replicate your data across many regions, going with a provider that gives a good deal of bandwidth can save a fortune. We're at the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Netflix as a small company, but building our own CDN on top of a cloud vendor 
But your guess about just as you're and getting bites for cheap is actually a totally illogical approach in some cases. Cheers, Ian. Hmm. And Ian is referring to an article from 2015 about Netflix's CDN, and I asked a question about who does this and if they could write in, and so Ian replied. So thanks, Hmm. Ian. That's really helpful. Yeah, good to tie these together. And yeah, that seems to be the end of this episode. Uh, Although our producer, JT, wants us to mention once more that you can join us and other BSD fans in our BSD Now Telegram channel, uh, which you can find the link to uh, at in our show notes. And we seem to be in Telegram land. <laughs> I forgot to join. Uh, whatever it may be, uh, there will be a new episode out next week. Uh, for now, check out what we had in this episode in uh, terms of articles or stuff you liked. Send us feedback at bsdnow.tv. Feedback at PSN.tv. And yeah, yeah, have a good time till next week. 